Hello, and welcome to another episode of In the Spotlight, the SciComm podcast brought to you by the Science Policy Outreach Task Force at Northwestern University. We chat with graduate students and early career researchers about their work and why they do it. If you're a new listener, we're glad to have you. I highly recommend you check out our first season, where we cover topics ranging from nuclear power to bee ecologies. If you're a returning listener, we're so excited to see you again. My name is Nicholas, and I'm the co-host of the show. Unfortunately, stress is something that many of us deal with on a daily basis. But what is stress? How does our body react to it? And what can we do about it? Joining us today is PhD student Michael Lim. Michael is a fifth-year PhD student at the University of Guelph in the Department of Integrative Biology. Michael, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. So let's just get started. The first question that we always ask on this podcast is, why science? What's your science origin story? Why did you get started in the first place? I think probably my earliest memory of being interested in science would probably be in elementary school, maybe like first or second grade. We had like a visiting, like a science, like a magic show kind of thing coming to our class. Um, thinking back at now, it was incredibly rudimentary, like, you know, making like, um, you ever made those like stacked two, two liter bottle things and you just kind of swirl it and have the water go through it, like, wow, science, or like making like sugar crystals, like, wow, science. Um, <laughs> but since then, I've always been interested in, in all types of um, science. And it wasn't until I got later on into high school and I realized I had to pick, essentially, to pick between one of the three being biology, chemistry, or physics to go and focus on in university. I was kind of like, well, physics is a little too theoretical for me. Chemistry is a little bit too minuscule and like kind of Lego block building compounds. I'm more interested in looking at living species and therefore I went into biology and just kind of spiraled forward from that point. Yeah, that's exactly the same for me. So you mentioned you went into biology and obviously biology is a, a hugely broad field. What can you tell me about the specifics? You know, what subfield are you in? What's your current research about? Going back to my undergraduate, so I, I know I had also initially started in life sciences. For that point, you could specialize starting your second year. Um, and for all the different choices we had, you know, there was like, you can go into molecular biology or you can go into like biology or genetics. I decided to go into physiology because I was kind of more curious about a big whole organismal effect. But it's fun to point at a cell and you see like, you know, maybe there's an increased expression in, in your cells. You're like, oh, something's happening. but you know, most organisms, including humans, are much more complicated than that. And so if you're not looking at the whole organism, you might not really see the impact of, you know, what is the actual fitness um, impact to, to that. And so from that, I started to go into physiology and just kind of happenstance, um, I ended up going into uh, aquatic uh, physiology just because I was searching forward for a few projects um, in my undergrad. And I worked with Dr. Chris Wood, who is a big, um, I guess, mineral toxicologist, aquatic toxicologist. Um, I was working on an ammonia and copper project. You, you quickly realize, especially in, I'm not sure how, how it is in the, the US, but in Canada, there's a really kind of like interconnected like group um, in a lot of Canadian biology. So if you happen to work on a certain project, you get end up working with a whole bunch of other people working on similar projects at the universities. So it kind of was like a, a connection of a connection from that first undergraduate experience working with um, rainbow trout that I came across this project for stress physiology um, with uh, Nick Bernier here at the University of Guelph. That's how I decided to do my PhD with him. And 
really, I guess, decided my future for the next several years. <laughs> of course, PhDs are definitely a long-term commitment. So, so stress physiology, you know, what does that mean, really? If you can break it down in as simple as terms as possible. So, if you want to break it just into two components, so we got stress. So, <laughs> stress is a big uh, triggering word for for many people in this field. Um, for example. What is stress? Can you say something is a stressor or someone's not stressed? How are you going to measure stress? So uh, in terms of stress, probably the most common thing you think of, um, you might hear even like in, you know, the ma mainstream media, the like induction of cortisol in humans. So that's the like one quote, stress hormone. Um, and so for stress physiology, we're looking at the impact of being exposed to a stressor, which happens to increase some measure of stress, for example, high level cortisol, or the effects on the physiology or kind of like I guess the whole organisms like body tissues, different organs, um, survival. The physiology is kind of a <laughs> very broad umbrella term to cover all types of different things you can measure in a particular organism. So in, in a nutshell, the study of stress physiology is determining if something is stressful to an organism, whether that is either extrinsic. So for example, you know, you're exposed to radiation or high temperatures or something, and it perceives a stress when you have a stress response, which is like, the induction of cortisol, um, the protection of your cells by like some stress response mechanisms, um, the right thing is ROS, and that t in turn affects your overall physiology. So for example, it can change um, how you perceive stress, how you're able to tolerate stressors, um, how you can reallocate your energy stores to deal with the stress versus other quote unquote non-essential um, processes in your body, for example, reproduction or growth are typically many things are kind of traded off for better stress protection. And so stress physiology is kind of looking at, is something stressful? And then what does it do to you as a result? Okay, yeah, cause, cause and effect is what drives science, right? Mm -hmm. So you've obviously mentioned this stress physiology field, which that by itself also seems incredibly broad because are you looking at systems? Are you looking mm -hmm. at specific organisms? You know, I mean, everything feels stress, right? From stressed out graduate students to <laughs> yeast, who's just trying to survive, but we keep on poking them. Um, what, how do you investigate stress physiology? What are you working with? So just like you said, there are many different levels in like stress physiology, ranging from you know, going to the single cell or even like a single organelle, going all the way up to like ecosystems. As for my work, I'm working with um, zebrafish. So we're, we're more focused on the whole organism level, so where are the impacts of being exposed to stress and what changes are we seeing in those organisms. And we're kind of diving down a little bit down into kind of the more cursory what is linked to those physical changes. For example, what do we see in specific tissues and how do those impact the whole organism. My work differs a little bit from most stress physiology in that I'm actually looking at transgenerational impacts. So instead of just looking at the impact of stress on a single organism, but what happens to their offspring if they're stressed? That's fascinating. So, so I have I have a couple questions. The first is why zebrafish? You know, I think when most people think of stress, they don't immediately jump to fish. <laughs> so, there's there's two main reasons, I guess. So I'll I'll go through the, the really simple one first. The first one is it's easy. It's a lot easier to work with uh, fish than it is to work with, say, um, other mammals. There's a lot less red tape. It's a lot easier to feed and maintain them versus, say, 
having a colony of like hundreds of mice and having to pay for technician and lab space and all that just not feasible for most um, labs that don't have like you know multi-million dollar funding or looking at like you know cancer research for example um, in terms of why we chose them for this particular stress model is that these have been used for decades um, up until this point and because they're easy to grow in the lab they're easy relatively easy to maintain um, their genome is fully sequenced so we can target specific things that we're curious to look at and measure them precisely because it's been it's been well you know documented and for many different genes at this point but perhaps the most important thing for me is that their natural habitat is exposed to commonly occurring stressors so my research is done mostly in the light of where are the impacts of climate change and are there is there an ability for organisms to repair their offspring so zebrafish are um, tropical species from india they live in shallow waters and so they're often exposed to high temperatures that cycle throughout the day and the night and hypoxia which is low dissolved oxygen levels in the water which also cycles throughout the day right so it seems like a pretty ideal organism to study stress in i mean as far as i know it's probably one of the easier ones uh, another really big thing i did mention um, just now is that they really they develop really quickly so as a tropical species, you know, um, they they go from being a fertilized egg up until hatching within three days, um, compared to if you want like a mice model, if you got a mouse pregnant, it would take more like nine weeks for you to really see <laughs> your, your progeny come out and you can see what the impacts there are on them. So it just makes a lot of research a lot faster than if you're working with a more traditional like mouse or rat model. Yeah, um, well aware of the timeframes used in, uh, <laughs> in mouse labs. That's That's the lab that I work in. So you mentioned this really interesting concept of transgenerational preparation, I guess, is one way to put it. So mm -hmm. what, how would you define a transgenerational effect? I, I know the word kind of describes it in itself, but how would you break it down? What does that mean in terms of biology? So transgenerational, so like the name implies it's kind of, it's that, that crossing, that bordering between two different, different generations. And so in terms of climate change stressors, for example, it'd be if your mom was exposed, like if you're a mother superfish, not a human, I mean, a human could be impacted, but if a mother was exposed, for example, to high temperatures, then could she impart information about that stressful high temperature experience to her offspring so that they're better prepared to deal with that stress? So that could involve, you know, an increased amount of heat shock proteins, which are these kind of protective proteins that help prepare you for future stress and can help repair denatured proteins within your body so you can function more normally. So by having more of these heat shock proteins, you would theoretically be able to tolerate a heat stress better than if your mother had not helped prepare you. And so that's the whole kind of mechanism behind what I'm studying. Okay, so you're studying the mechanism of how kind of the mother communicates with her offspring in, in a stressful environment. Yeah, okay. exactly. So this research has kind of been going on for uh, probably like a couple decades at this point, but it's there's a bunch of different terms for it floating around, and people are nitpicky about the exact terminology you want to use. But um, one of the papers I really liked and that I kind of cite a lot is by uh, Sheriff and Love. Um, they did a, they did a lot of reviews in terms of transitional stress between you know mammals like parents and their offspring, and in birds, um, and in fish, and one of these things is a term is the paternal match hypothesis was essentially boils down to if your mom's exposed to stress and you're exposed to the same stress, your life will be better than if you <laughs> were exposed to no stress or if your mom had not been exposed to that stress. So they're preparing you somehow. 
Um, there's been a lot of like hand waving in terms of what's involved um, in that transitional uh, stress information packaging. Um, people observe plenty of effects in terms of you know better tolerance, changed growth, um, changed living conditions, uh, disease incidence, but no too much work has gone into pinpointing exactly what might be involved in terms of the pathways that trigger these end results. Right, I see. Obviously, it must be. It sounds like a very complex um, subject. <laughs> so you linked it to climate change a little bit, right? You're talking about zebra, this tropical fish. So they, they feel the effects of climate change perhaps a little bit sooner than, than we do or that other species do. So over the lifetime of your field, which stress physiology, I'm sure, has a very long history, have you seen any changes in the way that it's being studied and what you're studying maybe in the past decade or so or since you began your PhD? So starting from when it was first kind of observed, like I was talking about stress physiology and that like, kind of transitional stress inheritance. Like one of the earliest papers was done in like um, Spisola or uh, fruit flies where they saw an increased heat tolerance when exposed in, you know, an animal or the mother Drosophilus to heat stress, which had higher HSPs and were transferred to their offspring, and they had higher heat tolerance. And I was like, who was all? I mean, it, of course, it, at the time, it, it was a groundbreaking finding and really kind of paved the way for looking at more of that kind of mRNA transfer into organisms. It's more, so science is very stepwise. The problem is that when you have many, many, many steps across several decades, you kind of just relying on what's been seen before. So people are kind of, well, I don't want to, I want to like blame people because it's, you know, what, what can you do other than read people's papers and then build your own research based on that? But a lot of people are kind of just, instead of actually looking at the impacts of stressors on parents and what happens to their offspring, people are kind of going around that and kind of sidestepping it by exposing them to high levels of cortisol, which I mentioned before is a kind of the stress hormone. So when an animal is stressed, they produce more cortisol. So theoretically, if you just dumped a whole bunch of cortisol onto an animal, they could change their stress response and then you'll see a triggered effect. Um, but a lot more research in the last, even the last like decades, like just before I started my PhD and going up to this point, there's been a lot more work looking at how that may not necessarily be the case where you can just kind of dump cortisol or into an animal because there's many different ways that you can modify um, what your parents are depositing into you so in terms of cortisol cortisol can be broken down it can be converted it can be excreted out of your body before it can really have its long-term effects so it's not really so easy to kind of just do one thing and then see a result and assume that's exactly what happens in nature unless you're actually trying to mimic more of a natural um, stressor condition Right, I'm assuming there's not just tubs of cortisol in nature for animals to jump into. <laughs> no. I, when you read some of the methodology, you're like, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. I understand that, you know, you, you have to build the framework. And unless you're doing this kind of research, you won't really understand what could the possible outcomes be if a mother was stressed. But because of the kind of gap there between, between using a natural stressor and using these, you know, man-made pools of cortisol, it, there's a little bit of a divide or kind of a mismatch there in terms of the outcomes and what you're trying to test. Right, of course. You know, science 
at the most fundamental it's we stand on the shoulders of giants right they had exactly. to go through those experiments for us to get to where we are now mm-hmm. and life is usually a bit more complex than uh, than any of us really think it is so you keep on bringing you keep on bringing us back to this idea of you mentioned it previously in your example of you know what is stress for example radiation or heat mm-hmm. um and you keep on bringing this idea of stress from the mother better preparing her offspring for the stressful environment which i feel like when most people think about stress it's not something that they welcome stress is usually a negative in people's lives but the way that you're framing it makes it sound like it's an adaptation a positive stress gets a bad rap obviously no one wants to be stressed for a long time there there are terrible things that can happen to your body in terms of being so stressed so a little bit of stress can help feel your decision making it can help make you kind of guess more focused it like i mentioned before it's it's shifting those energy stores away from quote unquote non-essential processes so that includes reproduction growth also your immune function so you know it, in the short term it's fine you're really energy to be more focused and do whatever your task is but if you're stressed for a long time that's when you start seeing these detrimental effects so you know people getting sick more often um, let's say you get a cut, it takes forever to heal because you're not really allocating that energy towards wound um, protection. So when people think of stress, they think of someone who's like, you know, putting their, like, putting their life on the line, working like 20-hour days um, for several days in a row until they're completely burnt out. But when I'm talking about stress, obviously, you know, to the organism being exposed to stress, it's not ideal. They don't want to be experiencing that stress. But what I'm just trying to reframe is that being exposed to that stress can help change that your offspring can cope with it later on in life. Now, these alterations aren't necessarily good. So as I mentioned before, there's that maternal match. So say your mom's exposed to a high level of stress. And so you're now prepared, prepared for stress in, in the future. So like a really famous example would be you have a stressed mother and they produce either like stressed like mice or stressed like young rabbits. It's been seen in a couple of different species. Um, where now your offspring is like super, super tense. They're, they're anxious all the time because they're experience, they're expecting, not really, expecting might be the right word, but their phenotype has been altered so that they are prepared for a stressful environment to be like attacked at any moment, to be very stressed out like their parents were. But say the stress is gone, the predator is no longer there, for example, or there's no longer like a lack of food, for example, and then suddenly things are okay. If you're anxious all the time, then you're not really going to be going out there and foraging appropriately. You're not going to grow as well. You're not going to reproduce as well, which can impact your fitness. So this kind of internal match hypothesis is really important that what the offspring is exposed to must be similar to what the parents are exposed to for it to be beneficial. Um, and like a much more stress itself isn't inherently good or bad. It's good in, or, I mean, you could say it's good in the short term, bad in the long term, but it's more of just a, a way for organisms to cope to whatever stressful condition in this particular moment of time. I guess it's similar to the concept of evolution and natural selection, right? A particular change is only advantageous in the current environment, and that changes suddenly might not be anymore. Exactly. So the, the really good thing about this, so I'm going to verge into a completely related but completely large field out there that i'm just kind of going to hint at so you may be familiar with the term epigenetics um so it's a whole like modification of your 
uh, the expressed genes and proteins you have in your body without really changing your DNA sequences. And so this can be done within generations or even within the lifetime of the individual. And this is, this is therefore really, really beneficial to help possibly mediate the effects we might see with climate change, where it would take, you know, if you're going with the traditional uh, natural selection evolution, it would take thousands and thousands of years, and like tens and tens of generations to see, if you're lucky, some random mutation that would end up being beneficial later on. But with epigenetic modifications, we can see these changes much more rapidly. So like I said, even within the lifetime of the individual, so they can be better adapted to deal with climate change. And the good thing is that if things do change, say you're living in a really you know, fluctuating variable environment, that you can then have uh, modifications to go back to a more normal phenotype that doesn't need to have all these modifications to survive in a stressful environment. So rapid evolution in, in that sense, or I guess it's a different mechanism than evolution, yeah. but the same concept. <laughs> I'm just being careful with the wording. Yeah. I feel like many, uh, <laughs> many evolutionary like, ecologists be like, you can't say that. That's not evolution. I'm like, yeah, it's more of like a and generational acclimation kind of okay. adaptation. Yeah. I, I'll welcome all the, all the Twitter responses. So you mentioned that stress gets a bad rap. Obviously, it's discussed colloquially and, uh, and I guess in articles and news and reduce your stress or live a stress-free life. What are some common misconceptions about your research in general public? And, you know, what would you like to see? How would you like to see the messaging of your field change? So I think it's important, like I mentioned before, to really consider stress in terms of how long are you being stressed for and what are you being exposed to? And what do you hope the outcomes are? If you're hoping to survive a stressful situation, yes, you want to be able to have that induction in cortisol, that energy mobilization, so you can escape whatever stressful situation you're in. Um, but if you're exposed to stress for a long time, like a low-level stress, which a lot of people are exposed to, and so we have these kind of more long-term health effects that we see all the time in, in the media, for example. And therefore, I just want to, you know, it's it's just framing the problem properly, I think is really important. And then, <laughs> I, and also you speaking of the masking, there's a lot of work, um, I guess, or maybe a little bit of scaring going around in terms of epigenetics. So when people point to things now, things being different. So like a common example, we like say you have twins, um, they're not 100%, you know, clones of each other. And those differences you can point to go, let's epigenetics, or, or there's some slight difference in what they're exposed to or what you what, or what they're eating or whatever, which, which can change. Um, depends on who you are and people get worried that oh if i'm stressed that's going to affect my child and my child's child because there's been a lot of work um probably the most famous one for humans would be that there was a big dutch famine um in world war ii where children of mothers who grew up in these stressful environments have higher risks of obesity and like cardiovascular disease and those kind of like um i guess eating related disorders that's because you know they're they they were in the womb and developing or even before then they were quote unquote being prepared for an environment with little food and so their body types are more adapted to kind of deal with that of course you know um as i mentioned briefly before epigenetics can go both ways so even though you can't have these modifications to change your phenotype um you can make changes to yourself that can then have changes later on so what's one of the fun facts about your research it's not so much of the heavy uh obviously very important work you're doing, but something that surprises people uh, about stress. 
I guess the thing that surprised people, like, especially those who um, are familiar with, I guess, research in general or, or have much of a higher education in terms of um, biology work, they're like, what? You can stress out a fish? Fish feel stress. <laughs> Which is probably uh, the thing I get most from my friends who are, who are not involved in um, the science fields. I'm like, yeah, and, and you, you explain, you know, how there's a lot of conserved stress responses in both humans, fish, uh, I don't know, birds, other mammals. There, there's a lot of key pathways that are conserved, and that's why doing research and really any organism in, the, in this field can really help guide future research to look for similar pathways and similar organisms. So if someone's listening to this episode and they have to understand one key thing about your work, what do you want to spotlight? I guess I want to spotlight is there is a little bit of hope on the horizon in that organisms around the world may be able to help protect their offspring or rather prepare their offspring for future climate change stresses, but at the same time, there's only so far that can go. And so to really give organisms that I want to find a chance, we still need to be putting in an effort to make these changes now so that this transversal protection can really have time and room to help protect our future generations of animals and plants and humans, too. <laughs> well, Thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. Your research is incredibly fascinating, and I hope that everyone listening felt the same way. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Listeners, I also want to remind you all to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does make a difference in getting this podcast out to a wider audience. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find this podcast on Twitter at SpotlightThePod. This podcast, once again, was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter at SpotForceNU. Thank you, and we'll see you in future episodes.